0: Hello and welcome to Authors Matters by ALCS, the podcast from the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society. I'm Caroline Sanderson and I'm an author, editor and books journalist and yes, a member of ALCS too. ALCS is a membership organisation that collects and pays out money to writers for secondary uses of their works. It has over 100,000 members in the UK and worldwide and has paid out over £500 million to writers since it was established in 1977. ALCS represents all types of writers, journalists, academics, radio drama writers, novelists, poets, and more. If you're not already a member and want to find out more, visit the ALCS website at www.alcs.co.uk. In this episode, we have a celebratory focus on awards and award-winning authors. We'll talk to Alison Baxter, Head of Communications, about the ethos behind ALCS's ongoing commitment to sponsoring a whole host of prizes for Outstanding Writing. We're here from two recent winners of two of those prestigious ALCS-sponsored prizes. Wendy Riley is the winner of the ALCS Tom Gallon Trust Award. She tells us about the moving real-life inspiration behind her, a winning short story, Eva at the End of the World.
1: The wonderful thing about the short story, you can visit so many worlds, so many people. You can create so many scenarios.
0: And I'll also be chatting to children's writer Anthony McGowan, winner of this year's Cillip Carnegie Medal for Outstanding Writing for Children. He explains how his boyhood love of nature inspired the writing of his winning novel, Lark, a story that is both gripping and heart-rending.
2: Partly, or the love of nature aspect, partly stems from that that unique small-town Yorkshire world that I was brought up in.
0: Finally... We'll have an update for our ALCS writer members of important information and dates for the diary. So, Ali, on this episode of the podcast, we're going to hear from two of the winners of awards that ALCS sponsors, the Philip Carnegie Medal and the ALCS Tom Gallon Award. And I know that ALCS sponsors other awards as well, Why is it important for ALCS to support these kinds of events?
3: Well, at ALCS, we not only pay individual writers the money we've collected for them and make sure they get what they're owed, but our board think it's really important that we also support the wider writing community. So we set aside a fund for writers' causes in the UK, which include a number of writing awards, The courses that we typically support will be projects that help further writers' interests, promote cultural diversity, support writers from a wide variety of backgrounds, um, are aligned with ALCS's ethos and beliefs, and help to ensure that we can share positive messages about copyright and its importance to creators at the same time.
0: Yes, and on the subject of copyright, um, quite a bit of that work involves teaching children about the importance of copyright uh, to creators as well, doesn't it?
3: Yes, it does. I mean, we want people to know that copyright is there to protect their work and they have the right to be paid for their work if they choose to. Um, It's their work and it's their choice. But copyright doesn't always have the best reputation, which we're quite aware of. So we work with organisations like the National Literacy Trust and the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education on projects, competitions and awards that help teach children about the importance of copyright and why it's a good thing.
0: Yes, and and there are some new resources, I think, as well, aren't there?
3: Yes, we've also developed some resources around this topic to help parents, carers and teachers talk to children about copyright and how it protects creators. And these are all available um, for download on the copyright education page of our website, which is www.alcs.co.uk. Great.
0: ALCS is proud sponsor of the Tom Gallon Trust Award. Administered by the Society of Authors, it's an annual award of £1,000 for a short story, established thanks to a bequest from Miss Nellie Tom Gallon in memory of her brother. This year's winner is Wendy Riley for her story entitled Eva at the End of the World. Award judge Michelle Roberts praised it for its commitment, clarity and compassion. And I'm delighted to say that Wendy, who lives near Melbourne in Australia, Joins me now, Wendy. Welcome to Authors Matters, and congratulations on winning the Tom Gallon Trust Award. Can you tell us a bit more about your winning story and what inspired it?
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Look, it's uh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. And it was just it was a wonderful, wonderful thing to to realise that I'd won it. And I actually had to keep going back and checking the email because I didn't really trust it. So. Uh, it was it was a huge thing for me. Um, and my story is about um, a child, Eva, um, who is caught up in the siege of Aleppo. And um, ever since I first started kind of following what was happening there, and that goes back really probably to about 2015, I think now. Um, I couldn't really believe how bad it was. It was just such a, a series of catastrophes that were unfurling there, it. And I knew that I really, really wanted to write a short story. I had to write a short story about it. And all I actually knew at that point was the opening line was going to be, I will meet you on the road to Aleppo. Because this was when they were actually blocking off the main arterial road into Aleppo. It was, it was must have been so terrifying to be there, and everybody inside was just being bombed. Um, but it took me took me years to actually write it because it was such a complex situation. I could not get my head around it. There were so many. It wasn't like a more traditional war where you have maybe one faction, two factions, perhaps a third faction. There were like multiple groups that were all constantly fra- sort of fracturing um, and regrouping and. Um, it was carnage, basically. And um, in the end, I read lots of news reports, I still couldn't get a handle on it. So in the end, I actually read two books by Syrian authors, actually about what life was like in Syria, um, under such a brutal dictatorship, and then under Daesh as well. And that was when I got an emotional handle on it. And that's when I started developing the characters and I let myself let go of some of the nitty gritty detail because I wasn't writing a journalistic piece. It had to be authentic, but that was when I actually just allowed myself to get into the head of someone who was literally at the end of her world. That's why I called it Eva at the end of the world. Um, mm. Yeah. So that that's pretty. And it was, it's quite an angry story and it's quite controversial because I'm quite blunt about various Um, religious affiliations. So I I didn't actually get any feedback. I entered it into about four competitions. I got zero feedback and I was actually starting to think it's just too politically incorrect. Um, Maybe I'm offending people. And I was really disappointed because I thought it was one of the most powerful pieces I've written. So when it actually did win, I just felt so, so validated. I was just absolutely delighted. And I was absolutely delighted for this child because in a way, the story is, it's not really about me. It's, it is about this child who I hope I brought to life. I, I, that's that's tremendous, and I mean, you've expressed
0: really well there. I think something about what the short story form can do. You know, in terms of it being a leap of imagination into another world and another life. Would you say that that's why you like the form of, of short stories?
1: Oh, yes. You can. It, it gives you so much freedom to move around. If you're writing a novel, you're putting years of intense emotional work into into this story and you have to stay with these characters and sometimes you just want to jump out and you can't because you have to see it through the wonderful thing about the short story you can visit so many worlds so many people you can create so many scenarios without having to be so much of an expert that you give away so much of yourself in the meantime you know I think it's a you have to get a balance you have to talk with enough authority and understanding about your world to make it real for the reader because the reader will know if you haven't done your homework they'll know if you don't get what you're talking about i think so you have to know enough but it, it is short and accessible enough both for the writer and the reader i think to actually be able to move a bit more freely between stories and yeah i think that that is why and we're also time poor now regarding writing them and regarding reading them. So I think that the short story is great for the reader as well, because you can dip in. You don't have to devote weeks um, or you know a major chunk of your life. Well, novels are wonderful, but they're different.
0: Um, Tell us a bit about yourself. I know you were born in England and you originally trained as a journalist. And um, like many ALCS members, you have, as it were, a a writing day job, which is business writing, I think.
1: Yes, yes. So I do lots of websites. I do lots of um, brochures, email campaigns, white papers. I've done most things now. And when I first, I, I loved, I absolutely loved my journalism. And I, I started on local newspapers in Windsor and Slough, and they they were wonderful colorful areas and um, I really really enjoyed that but over the years I went into different various different kind of occupations and journalism jobs have just tailed off and I never kind of hit the upper echelons of journalism which is where you actually need to be now to really um, I think be making a go of it uh, so I started more um, on creative writing but and and I was sort of pushed into business writing because I wanted to be writing, but the journalism jobs weren't there. And um, I actually did it a bit of a disservice when I first started because I kind of thought it was very separate to creative writing. And business writing was a bit kind of down there and creative writing was up there uh, to, to be aspired to. But now I just really think as my business writing has improved and I've got much more mastery of so many different forms of writing my creative writing has taken off it's improved out of sight so I've really changed the way that I think I think all forms of writing are valid and whatever you're writing about the most boring business thing might be I might think is the most boring business thing the challenge is to find a way someone finds that really interesting you know, for someone, that's really their thing. And so that's my challenge to also think, well, well, what what is the upside of this thing? You know, so I do think now that there are very many forms of um, very valid writing, really. Uh, and I'm glad that I, I can earn something of a living. It's not a very flush living, but something of a living from writing pretty much most of the time now.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we we wish you well with all your writing. We wish you well during this current crisis. uh, But congratulations again.
1: Thank you so much. I feel very honoured. Thank you for having me.
0: Two more awards of which ALCS is a proud longtime sponsor are the Carnegie and Kate Greenaway Medals, run by Silip the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals. These prestigious awards for an outstanding children's book and outstanding children's book illustration, respectively, are the UK's oldest children's book prizes. The 2020 Silip Carnegie Medal was won by Anthony McGowan for his book, Lark, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Anthony to Authors Matters. Anthony, huge congratulations on winning the SILIP Carnegie Medal. Um, it's a cliched question, I know, to ask you about how you feel about winning this award, but the Carnegie is rather special, isn't it? It's got a roll call of winners going back all the way to 1936.
2: Oh, it is. You know, I, I've said elsewhere, I think it's the greatest, not just children's book prize in the world, but book prize in the world full stop. Um, you know, it was obviously an amazing thing to find out that would won it, but it's also rather strange times, aren't they? So... Um I, I don't know, that, the whole kind of weirdness all around, it maybe tapped a bit of the sheer joy, but there's still quite a lot of joy left over. So, yes, it was very nice.
0: Oh, pleased to hear it. So, so Lark, which I have to say, I read in one sitting, Utterly gripped. is the story of what happens to brothers Nicky and Kenny when they, in the vein of a kind of classic adventure story, get lost on the moors. Um, but although this book stands alone, it's not the first book you've written about these characters, is it? What, so, so what inspired them, and where did this particular story come from?
2: Well, as I say, it's the fourth in the trilogy. Um, the, the 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 four books now are Brock was the first one, then Pike, then Rook, and finally finally Lark. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the I suppose the, the twin inspirations for the story really were the the small town where out where I grew up. Uh, it's a small town, small town or a big village called Sherbin in Elmett. and anyone that knows the town would totally recognise it in the in the world of, of the boys. Um, and then the two boys themselves are kind of half based on some people that I knew, some of the kids that I grew up with. Um, but I suppose what I wanted most of all in that relationship was to have um, well the. the, the to begin with, they're kind of isolated because their, their family background is, is pretty nightmarish. Their mum left home when they were quite small. Their dad can't cope, he drinks too much and trouble with the police at the beginning of the, of the series. And the older brother, um, Kenny, has um, moderate learning difficulties. So um, Nikki, his younger brother, becomes his carer. Uh, and so this creates an incredible bond between the two of them that, that runs all the way through, through the books. Um, and I, I suppose I'd taken them on, on a journey through the first three books fr- from that position of absolute desperate poverty at the beginning to that their the, the family background gradually in, in, improve slightly and at the start of Lark um things are kind of looking up for them that they managed to track down their mum and she's going to come and visit them uh but i wanted to give them one one kind of last big adventure uh and so i sent them up on onto the high moors to uh to have a I suppose uh Uh, One of those, uh, as you say, kind of classic wilderness survival type stories, but it just happens to be in, in, um, in Yorkshire rather than Canada or Africa or South America. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, and I love the double meaning of the title lark, um, both the birds and the boys are sort of longing to spot and the idea of a lark being a sort of an adventure, which go, the lark goes a bit wrong, doesn't it? I think the nature element, which is a very strong thread through all four of the books, um, was inspired by your own love of nature as a boy, wasn't it?
2: Uh, oh, yes, um, my two great obsessions when I was a, when I was a kid were uh, were the natural world, animals and birds in particular and uh, and war I was one of those horrible little boys who really cared about, about tanks and airplanes. Um, but again I think partly or the love of nature aspect partly stems from that that unique small town Yorkshire world that I was brought up in so although my immediate world was kind of semi urban, um, you were only ever a five minute bike ride away from the fields and the woods that surrounded our, our small town. And so that, that interpenetration of the roar on the urban gave an extra kind of interest to that natural world. So we would cycle out to these small little woods and copses around us and try and find badger sets. And in all the fields, when I was younger, around the village, um, you would see larks in the springtime, And these kind of explosive uh, flights they do where the males fly straight up in the air, singing their hearts out. Um, so, yeah, and also I suppose back in those days, um, you know, the 70s when I was growing up, there was less to do. Uh, so, I suppose the natural world was was my version of a PlayStation, I guess. Mm.
0: Now, your your storytelling in the book, and I, I, I mean, I, this is this is an award winning book, and it doesn't surprise me. Your storytelling is so powerful, but it's also very simple and direct in it in in its language. And this is, I know, partly due to the fact that you wrote the book for Barrington Stokes, this fantastic publisher based in Scotland which publishes books in order to break down barriers for young readers. So tell us how you came to work with them and whether that sort of removal of Barrow's is a cause close to your heart.
2: Yeah, well, it was a a long time ago. I met a Barrington Stoke author at a Booker Awards um, probably 10 years ago, even more. Um, And she was telling me about what what a great publisher they were. And um, so I I kind of made some kind of contact. I can't remember if they approached me or I approached them. Uh, and I wrote a little book for them called The Fall. And I've always been used to, um, to sending off a manuscript which then comes back with very few amendments but when it came back from them this book called The Fall it was absolutely covered in blue pencil uh, That, that they, they, they'd ripped my prose to shreds and I was slightly annoyed in that that way that you are uh, and it's because they, they back in those days they went through a very detailed process of refining their, their manuscript so it went out to a school and was workshopped and all the things that um, you know and the things that I thought were brilliant bits of prose turned out to mean nothing at all to these, these kids reading it um, so I kind of I suppose I, I learn on the job, how to write a book for Barrington Stoke. And after that, I'd k- kind of internalized these rules. But I suppose that the way that I really approached it was to get into the head of my, my main character, get into that head of, of Nicky, who's the narrator in, in, in the series. Uh, and he's, um, you know, from an impoverished background, he's a 13-year-old schoolboy. And so if I could find his voice, then that would be the right kind of voice then for the readers. And so that's my my first main job was to get into his head, and after that everything kind of followed. But in terms of the second part of your question about how important it is to 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 connect with with readers, um, especially the kind of readers who don't who, who aren't steeped in, in books and literature, um, uh, y- yes, it, it was um, it was a a massive part of my wanting to be an author. I think I've told the story quite a few times about when I was at um at quite a tough co- comprehensive school in Leeds, uh, and I remember in i think my second or third year what's now year what 8 or 9 uh, as a class reader we're reading um, a Kestrel for a nave by Barry Hines uh, and you know that awful way that schoolboys have of picking their way laboriously through the text and uh, and suddenly one of the kids um just kind of got it he put his hand up and he said um Miss, miss, it's us, isn't it? It's us. And he kind of realized that people like him, like us, ordinary lead schoolboys were allowed to be in books. And so that was one of my, that's my inciting moment, I think, as an author to try and create the sort of text in which ordinary lead schoolboys were allowed to exist. If that kind of makes sense
0: yes, it makes it makes complete sense and and I mean without wanting to put labels on you as a writer, we're talking a lot in the publishing industry at the moment about diversity, and that includes you know class and regional diversity and I mean, you grew up in Yorkshire in a working class Absolutely, family, yeah. so it's clearly going to influence what you write, and increasingly important to hear those yeah. voices, I think.
2: I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, as you say, diversity is, is key in, in, in publishing. Um, and there that, you know, hasn't been enough of it. I, you know, if you go to, I, I think I've worked with probably seven or eight publishers now, and there is that kind of slightly homogenous feel when you go in them. That, you know, there aren't any any BMAE people working there. There are very, very few working class people there. Uh, and so, yes, to, you know, I think that the key is to get diversity in the publishers, which will then eventually filter through to, diversity throughout the publishing world for you know the writers and and then also the readers the most important people
0: yeah absolutely so so what's next for you in your diverse career you've written yeah. for teenagers <laughs> you've written for adults you, yeah. you, you your most recent book was how to teach philosophy to your dog a book for adults yeah. and you've written for younger children as well so where are you going next
2: that's nothing i haven't stooped to um you know it's re- really hard to know i well the I finished one book, which is um, a similar kind of story to the Nick and Kenny book, you know, it's, it's for, it was a collaboration between Barrington Stoke and the OUP, but it's another kind of grim working class story about bullying in the North, um, but then I'm halfway through a different book, which is a wildlife adventure. It's, it's set um, in the area around the Chernobyl nuclear plant, and it's about the interaction of, uh, of feral dogs and wolves and, the, and the, the sort of rewilding of that whole area. Um, so that's a different project, which I'm as I said, well, three quarters of the way through. Um, after that, I, I just don't know. But I suppose my, you know, all the way through my career, I've, I suppose I've I felt that I had different voices, different strands. I've always written for adults. Um, but then all, also, I suppose I always felt that my core was probably writing for teenagers. Uh, and I will never stop doing that, I don't think. Then when I had younger children, I kind of wrote books for them as well. Um, I don't know, maybe I've, uh, <laughs> I've gone in too many different directions diluted my, my feeble abilities too much but I, I, it, I, I just I don't know what the next thing is after that um, one waits for inspiration to call but I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I do hope that I'll always have these different strands I'll always write for adults and teenagers and younger kids
0: Well there's not much delusion about winning the Silip Karligi <laughs> medal so huge congratulations thank and thank you so much for joining us on Authors Matters
2: My absolute pleasure, thank you <laughs>
0: So let's go back to Alison Baxter now, Head of Communications at ALCS, for an update on uh, things members need to know right now. Hi, Ali. So put us in the picture as to what's going on.
3: Well, even though it feels like we've only just had one, the next ALCS distribution is not that far away. Yay! Yay! This year, we'll be making payments to members on or around the 30th of September. So, members, if you've recently changed your bank account, make sure your ALCS account details are up to date by the 10th of September to ensure you're paid into the right account. Um, It's worth noting, though, that our September distribution is the smaller of our two distributions. Um, In it, we typically pay around 30,000 members, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually just under a third of our total membership. So not everybody receives a payment. And please don't be disappointed if you, didn't, you know, don't receive one this time. It's mainly focused on audiovisual payments.
0: Right. So, uh, but I mean, good idea for, for all members to check that their uh, accounts are up to date by the 10th of September, ready for payment on the 30th um, if you're due to receive one. Yes, definitely. Excellent. Right. Anything else we need to know?
3: Well, as many members will know, in November, we um, hold our annual general meeting, our AGM. Um, In light of the current situation we find ourselves in, um, we've decided that we'll be holding this year's event virtually. Um, So it's going to take place on the same date. It'll be Thursday, the 26th of November, and we'll be letting members know the kind of finer details much nearer the time, but it will be online.
0: A virtual AGM. That will be interesting. So date for our diaries, Thursday, the 26th of November. And any other deadlines, anything else coming up we need to know about?
3: We do a few works deadlines that we'd like to remind members about. Firstly, the deadline for articles. Um, it's a way off yet, but members have until the end of November, the 30th of November, to update their ALCS accounts with the articles that they've written in the last three years. We also have our deadline for visual contributions, which is at the end of December. That's the 31st of December. So any photos, illustrations or diagrams that members have uh, included in magazines, journals or books, please make sure you add those to your online accounts.
0: Great. So another very important deadline there. 30th of November for articles and 31st of December for visual contributions. Great. Thanks very much, Ali.
3: Thanks, Caroline.
0: We aim to reflect the views of a wide variety of writers on our podcast, but their views are, of course, their own. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions. Do drop us a line at communications at alcs.co.uk. And please join us next time. Goodbye.